It's Palm Sunday. Uh, according to the church calendar, this is the Sunday that we uh, remember and celebrate, as we said, the, the entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem and the, the um, people greeting him in a, in, a, in a kingly way as a king uh, would, would be greeted. And they wave the palm branches and they put their coats on the ground. And we'll look at some of that this morning. But I want to set up for our passage this morning. First, I want to read our passage this morning, and then I want to set it up as we consider what it says. And so if you're there, look at John 12, starting in verse 20. The Gospel of John 12, chapter 12, verse 20. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. May we pray this morning. God, I ask that as we've gathered together in your name to worship and glorify you, to make much of you, that you would be exalted on high this morning. God, on this Palm Sunday morning, as we think about the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and, and what it sets up for the rest of this Holy Week, Father, the, the, the coming death of Jesus on the cross on Thursday and Friday and the, the um, resurrection of him on next Sunday. God, may we prepare our hearts even today, this morning, for this special week. God, I pray as we study this passage that it would have uh, a significant weight on our lives, that we would hear and receive it with uh, open hearts and ears. Holy Spirit, were you Will you work out this text within us that we would um, be changed this morning, that we would grow as, as deeper followers and believers, disciples of you? God, I pray that you would speak through me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing unto you. We thank you, Father, for this gift and this blessing to gather together. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to ask this morning, as we think about this text, two questions that we're going to wrestle with this morning. First question is this, who is Jesus to you? In your own personal life, as you think about the person of Jesus, and I don't mean what what you, the, the answer that you think I want to hear, that you think I want. I don't want the sort of the churchy Sunday school answer. I want in your own personal life, in the, the depths of your heart, 
Who is Jesus to you? And then the, the second question that, that accompanies that is, what compels you to seek him? Who is Jesus to you and what compels you to seek him? Those are the two questions that we want to grapple with this morning as we consider not only Palm Sunday and its events, but this particular passage. But leading up to the book, uh, or leading up to this passage, there's a lot that's happened, and we're going to try to cover as much as we can of that. If you are familiar with the book of John, uh, it's one of my favorite gospels of the four, uh, because it's a very concise and pointed type of book. In fact, John writes his gospel with an intention of giving very particular what, is, what he uses as signs that would prove who Jesus is. And, and as the, the Son of God, and it would prove why he's come to this earth. The first of those signs happens way back in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana. You remember the story where Jesus, we, we don't have much of Jesus' early life in John's letter, or I'm sorry, in John's gospel. We simply have sort of the start of his adult ministry. And you remember one of the first events that happens, he's at this wedding at Cana, and they run out of wine. And so, like any good mother would do to her son, she volunteers him to do something that he doesn't necessarily plan to do. Uh, and he changes water into wine, and, and it's, it's actually the better of the wine that is served. And, and it's sort of the first sign showing the miraculous power that Jesus has. The second sign comes shortly after that as he makes his way into the temple there in Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple and he drives out the, the money changers and those that were seeking to profit at the gates of the temple. And he, he calls them. Why would he calls them out and he says, why would you turn this house of God into a den of robbers or a den of thieves? And he, you remember the story, he uh, grabs a whip and he drives out the money changers. That's the second sign given, proving who Jesus is. The third sign that's given happens in John chapter 4, where this noble person comes, this nobleman comes requesting that Jesus would heal his son. And so Jesus heals his son. The fifth one, the fifth sign, I'm sorry, the fourth sign that we see comes in John chapter 5. As Jesus is traveling about and he heals the sick, he, he heals many who are, are diseased and many who are dealing with very specific issues. The sixth sign, I'm sorry, the fifth sign that comes is in John chapter 6, where he feeds 5,000 men, the Bible says, not counting women and children. So likely a number far above 5,000. But these people are all gathered on the hillside listening to Jesus. The, the sun begins to set. His disciples say, listen, there's a lot of people here. They're probably hungry. Send them away so they can go eat. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he very casually says, well, you feed them. Now, they did not start off that day planning to feed 5,000 plus people. And so the the call to them to feed them strikes them as sort of a shock. And they say, well, all we have here are five loaves of bread and two fish. 
And so Jesus says that will do, and he blesses that small portion, and they, they begin to distribute it. They feed the entire crowd with 12 baskets left over. It's amazing. And it's another sign pointing to who Jesus is, the sixth sign that Jesus performs, this miraculous sign is the healing of a man born blind. You remember the story in John 9, there's a man who's born blind and his disciples come to him and and they ask a very profound question. They ask, Jesus, whose sin is responsible for making him blind? Is it his sin or is it his parents' sin? And Jesus offers them a great teaching there, but but miraculously heals this man born blind. And the last sign that's given, a famous story in the Bible, is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That's sort of the the immediate story that sets up our passage in John chapter uh, 11. Jesus comes to uh, Bethany where Lazarus and his sisters dwell. He had received word a few days prior to his arrival that Lazarus, his friend, had passed away. And so he comes three days late where the body would have been already put in the tomb and, and begun to decompose. And, and he's even greeted with, with sorrow and saying, if you had just been here sooner, he would have lived. But Jesus does something miraculous in that moment. He calls out Lazarus from the grave. And Lazarus comes forth. And the, the uh, what was dead comes alive again. It's the last sign that sort of sets up where we find ourselves thinking about the triumphal entry. And in the midst of those others, in the midst of those seven signs, there are other events of healings and miracles and teachings by Jesus that would all sort of give evidence and point to the fact that he is the Son of God. You can read the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and you will see and, and, and confirm and fill in some of the details of what John's Gospel does. Jesus has come to do a miraculous and incredible thing. And throughout Jesus' ministry, as he's going about doing these signs, he's going about healing people, he's going about about, uh, his, his earthly ministry, there are crowds of people that begin to surround and follow him, and they seek him for various reasons. These crowds of people hear of what Jesus is doing, and they begin to seek him for various reasons. One sort of crowd, some of them were sick, and they wanted to be made well. And so if we're thinking about the question, who is Jesus and why do you seek him, right? These, this is a crowd who, who sees Jesus as some sort of a miraculous healer. And so they've heard the stories of those that had leprosy that don't or who were blind and they're not and they couldn't walk and now they can. And so they have some sort of ailment on themselves. And so Jesus is this this miracle worker who can make me well. And so they just go seek him. Another crowd were simply hungry 
and want it to be fed again. In fact, in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, if you read what comes after that, Jesus goes across the lake from where they're at the next morning. The people follow him across the lake and they ask him to do it again. And Jesus calls them out on it. He says, you're not seeking me because you desire me. You're seeking me because I just fed you and you're looking for another meal. And so for those who were hungry and wanted to be fed, they saw Jesus, they sought Jesus as simply a means to an end. That if they found Jesus, they might be fed again. There's another crowd that would follow Jesus. And and they were trying to trip him up and discredit him. They accused him of blasphemy and of being a liar. In fact, they're sort of led by the religious leaders of the day and the Pharisees. And several attempts were made to actually seize him and to take his life. They tried to stone Jesus on three different occasions. You can find that in John 7, John 8, and John 10. For the religious leaders in that day, they wanted to silence Jesus either by arrest or by death because as Jesus' ministry expanded, their grip on the people was weakened. See, the Pharisees were the religious um, authority of that day, and you dare not do anything that they did not say. If you went against the Pharisees and the religious leaders, that was a mortal sin. But as Jesus' popularity grew, the Pharisees lost their influence on the people. He was a problem. This desire to silence Jesus would actually extend to his friends. Shortly after Lazarus is raised from the dead, the Pharisees even come up with a plan to kill him because his testimony of being dead, now alive, raised by Jesus was a big problem for them. And so if they could silence the work that Jesus had done, they thought he would lose popularity. To the religious leaders, Jesus is a problem because for a long time, they were the only authority. But now there's a different authority that has arrived. I think if we look at the world today, we sort of see Jesus in some of the same ways as they did back in the Bible. See, for some people, Jesus is sort of a magic genie. That if they simply rub the spiritual lamp, that they'll receive their wishes that Jesus would grant them. Now, rubbing that spiritual lamp might look like going to church, maybe tithing here and there, maybe serving or volunteering when we're asked, maybe committing an act of kindness in the community. I love it when somebody buys my cup of Starbucks in front of me, and and that's their act of kindness, and then that chain keeps going as if we've done a wonderful thing that day by spending money on an overpriced cup of coffee. See, we, we, they do these things all in an effort to have the, the genie Jesus serve them. I mean, clearly there is a master-slave relationship that exists there, 
but it puts the person as the master and Jesus as the slave. He's a genie. Or for others, much like the crowd in Jesus' day, they're simply sick and they need to be healed. We live in a fallen, broken world where illness and sickness and disease, some terrible, exists. And it affects people. And sometimes it is true that people will, will come to Jesus simply because they long to be healed. And so while seeing doctors and getting treatments and doing what, what the blessings of modern medicine would have you do, you also maybe start going to church. Or you start praying like you've never done before. Maybe you keep spiritual friends or company more often than you used to. But when the healing is done and you've gotten what you've wanted out of that, more often than not, all that Jesus stuff, well, we just don't need it anymore. I'm reminded of a story in Luke 17 where Jesus encounters 10 guys with leprosy and they come on the scene and they plead, Lord, have mercy on us. Heal us. And after hearing their cries to be healed, Jesus heals them. He says, go and present yourselves and you'll be made clean. And as they go, their leprosy just goes away. Nine out of the ten guys leave and don't come back. They don't even give Jesus a second thought. Only one comes back and actually worships him. Others today might simply see Jesus as a liar. They don't completely rule out religion. They just make up a new one. That the Jesus of the Bible, well, he's too strict or he's too archaic or I just don't believe that he would say that type of thing or he would mean that type of thing. And so they, they deconstruct what Orthodox faith is and they sort of build up their own new faith or they arrive at some new enlightenment or interpretation as to what a follower of God looks like, not what God's word would actually prescribe or describe as what God, God's followers would look like, what his disciples would be. They sort of create their own. These are the crowds that don't like to be confronted with truth. So they say truth is relative. It means whatever you want it to mean. They don't want to be accountable to their sin, so they just invent new methods to justify it and prove that God is okay with their sin. They're willing to persecute anyone who would disagree with them. And at the end of the day, religion is a personal matter and we shouldn't be talking about it anyway. I mean, I've heard that. That was a mentality that was so prevalent so many generations ago that that what you believe is for you and it's nobody else's business and so don't talk about it with anyone else because it might offend them. It's ridiculous. But it's what we believe or what this 
crowd would believe. There was a last crowd, though, that followed Jesus. Because they thought he was their solution to the current political problem that they had in the nation. The geographical region where Israel is found and the surrounding area is under Roman occupation. This wasn't so much a problem as long as the Jewish people stayed in the bounds of the Roman government, but they hated the Romans. They were an incredibly oppressive people. They were incredibly brutal and and cruel in in their dealings and handlings with people. They were masters at murder and at death. They heavily taxed the people to where they almost had nothing. They hated the Romans. So much so, in fact, that there is a class of Jews that, that sort of formed within the, the, the nation called zealots. And the Jewish zealots were, were specifically um, uh, uh, zealous uh, to combat and resist the Roman government. And out of this class, a sort of splinter cell uh, formed called the Sakari. And the Sakari in, in, in Hebrew literally means dagger men. These were guys that would walk around amongst crowds with daggers, little sharp objects in their sleeve of their coats, and they would execute people, either Roman citizens or those who sympathized with Rome, sometimes fellow Jews. There is a hatred Can you imagine so much of a hatred amongst a nation that assassins form to simply dispatch as many as you can? You might remember one of Jesus' disciples was one of these men, Simon the Zealot, at one point. For the nation of Israel, the Romans were a problem, and they had to go. They were ready and willing to fight, but they needed a leader to unite them. They needed a proper king to lead them into battle and freedom once again. And for all that Jesus had done and he had said, they wondered, could this be the conquering king that we've expected? Could this be the one that that the Old Testament prophesied about? Could he be the one that would rid the Roman Empire from us? And so this crowd began to follow him. This was the mentality that led to the events of that first Palm Sunday. The the, the crowd that gathered there and waved the palm branches and and and, and put their, their cloaks on the ground for him to walk on, they were welcoming in a conquering king. In fact, you can read in, in earlier parts of John chapter 12, there in verse 12, it says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus had not been given that title anywhere. It was a title that they put on him. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Notice what they said. 
as the crowds come out to meet him. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes, the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna was a, a term that was used as a cry for help. It was used as a term, as a, a plea for salvation. It is indeed a term of worship, but it's also a term of supplication. They were crying out, Jesus, save us. Well, what did they need to be saved from? In their minds, they needed to be saved from the Roman government. They were crying out to Jesus to save them from Rome. They call him the Messiah or Christ. The term in, in Greek is a term that means anointed one. They recognize Jesus to be the anointed one. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, he was this one that God had sent to rule and reign and overthrow the government. Jewish people believe that God would save them from their current affliction. And so this is how the first Palm Sunday is thought of. It's a very royal and regal event. And Luke's gospel tells us that people put their robes down. They, they literally um, humbled themselves before what they thought was their new king. It was a spectacle of pomp and circumstance. See, the people had the titles right. Jesus was their Messiah. He was their king. Their cries of Hosanna were rightly placed, but they were focused on their earthly circumstance. They missed what Jesus had come to do. He wasn't there to save them from Rome. He was there to save them from their sin. It's interesting, this same crowd that would shout Hosanna would shout crucify just five days later. The same crowd that cried out to Jesus, save us, would shout crucify him, kill him, just five days later. Oh, how quickly the message will turn when we don't get our way. Oh, how quickly our shouts will turn when we don't get our way. Again, I think this is the, the, the world has the same mentality. Like for some, Jesus, well, they'll give him a go for a while, thinking that he's going to be some sort of supernatural fix to all of their problems. See, if we, just, if we just follow Jesus, maybe he's going to lead us to something better. He's going to deliver us from, from all of these woes and these issues that we have. The crowds wanted Jesus to be something of their own desire, not who he actually was or intended to be. People today act the same way. They want Jesus to be a Messiah of their own making, not the actual Messiah that he is. They simply want him to fix their problems. They're so consumed with their present state of life or their situation or circumstance that they don't think about the spiritual. They need Jesus to come fix what's broken 
in their physical lives while completely missing the spiritual life. And see, when it doesn't work out for them, when Jesus doesn't deliver what they want him to deliver, they simply move on to the next artificial savior. They move on past Jesus. And all of that sets up and gets us to what we read this morning is our passage in John 12, 20. For the rest of John's gospel, after this passage, the the rest of the gospel is just the, the few days that Jesus has here on earth. It's a very rich and dense few days. I would encourage you this week, as we go through Holy Week, to to read just a little bit every day leading up to Thursday night in the Passover scene and see the, the, the primary teaching that Jesus gives there in the, the later half of John's gospel. But in John 12, again, who is Jesus to you? and What compels you to follow him? We see three things. Number one, we see the request. Look there again at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. There's a request that's made. It says that there were some Greeks that came to worship at the feast. Now, these were not necessarily Greek people. The the Bible uses that term interchangeably to simply mean not ethnic Jews. They were of a different ethnicity, a different land region, different tribe, different people group. Another word that the Bible uses often is the word Gentile. That's what we're supposed to understand here, that these are non-ethnic Jews but were God-fearers, they worshipped the God of the Jewish people, Yahweh, and so they've come, as they're welcome, to worship and participate in the feasts. And Passover was just a few days from this time, and so they would have gathered, just like everyone else is gathering, to enter into this festival. The interesting part of this encounter, though, is not so much the who, but the what, because their request is fascinating. They wanted to see Jesus. They requested an audience with him. They'd not seen him before, but perhaps have heard of him, maybe along their travels into the city, or perhaps word about Jesus has spread to where they lived, as if they they maybe were not in the towns or land regions that Jesus traveled in his three-year earthly ministry. We really don't know much about who these guys are, where they come from. We simply know that they are not ethnically Jewish, but they worship God. They've come to participate in the festivals, and they want to see Jesus. That's their request. I find this fascinating. Because as you read John's gospel, and you read the other three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, We know that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, came first for the Jews and then to the Gentiles, and he spent three intense years with the Jewish people. 
And for those three intense years, Jewish performed all kinds of miraculous wonders and taught all kinds of wonderful things, and the Jews would ask him for a sign. The Jews would ask him, Jesus, prove that you are who you say you are. Jesus, we need some sort of a sign, some sort of assurance, some sort of proof to know that what you're saying is actually true. They didn't, they didn't believe him at first. They needed some sort of evidence. And so they demand a sign. Not these men. These non-ethnic Jews, these Gentile guys, they arrive into town and the first thought they had upon hearing that Jesus was there is they wanted to see Jesus. They didn't ask for a sign of proof. They wanted the source himself. They wanted Jesus. How often in our own lives are we guilty of needing a sign from Jesus about something? How often do we tend to need Jesus to prove himself in our lives or provide some sort of assurance out of his word How much more guilty are we of demanding a sign and forgetting the source? We ask for a big, glowing neon sign to prove Jesus' word, and we forget the source. Church, I pray that our requests of our Lord would not be, give me a sign, but give me the source. I'm reminded of the old hymn written in the morning when I rise or when I am alone or when I am afraid or when I've come to die. You know it. Say it with me. Give me Jesus. Not a sign that everything is going to be better Not a sign that I'm going to make it. The hymn writer didn't say, in the morning, write it in the clouds that it's going to be a good day. Give me Jesus. I don't need a sign of hope. I need Jesus himself, who is our hope. Give me Jesus. That's their request. Number two, we want to consider The reply. Look there in verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus answered them, and we don't know, it's not very clear if he answers the disciples, Andrew and Philip, who've come to him, or if he answers the, the Gentiles, these Greek men that were seeking an audience with him, we're, we're really not sure, and that's not as important as the message itself, because the message that he, his reply that he gives is awfully profound. He says, the time for his glorification, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, is now. See, all throughout his ministry on earth, Jesus in obedience to the Father, never fully revealed who he was. He gave pictures of it. 
He, he gave some evidence to it. He spoke about it and taught about it, but he never fully reveals who he is or why he'd come. Not as explicitly as he will in the following chapters after this encounter. Because the time had now come. Again, there's misconceptions as we've looked at the, the misconceptions of the crowds that followed him. Jesus knew the hearts of men. He knew what it would mean if he did reveal himself and what, what would, how that would be received. And so he sort of eludes their thoughts and their desires up until now. And not that they would have believed him anyway. Again, looking back at his ministry, he's been charged with blasphemy several times. He's accused of being an agent of the devil. You remember that story where he's called Beelzebub, right? He's constantly being contended against by the religious leaders where they seek to discredit him at every turn. It's interesting that in their interactions with the physical Jesus, People often revealed their true motives and intentions. And he knew that in their hearts. He's, he's called them out before they've even gotten to speak. Right? Why would you think that? Why would you have that in your heart? Jesus knew exactly what they were after. And although he doesn't reveal himself totally, he engages with them in his mercy. So the hour had come, and then he, he gives this this sort of short parable. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's used agricultural parables before. It's a, it's a, um, a, a occupation that would have uh, fit well within that culture. And so it's very relatable. Now, I'm no farmer. I'm not even a hobbyist gardener. In fact, I know it to be true that I could kill a silk flower bought at Hobby Lobby. But I do remember my ninth grade biology class, and I do know how to use Google, which helps. And so I had to sort of look at and consider what his parable means here. And as I sort of unpack what a grain of wheat or a seed that he's talking about here, as I sort of be began to, to look at and consider what happens in that planting process, it's fascinating. See, seeds play a very important role in the germination and life of a plant. The, the seed by itself really is is, is meaningless unless you actually put it in the ground and let it do what it's designed to do. Just, just a handful of seeds has really very little purpose. You can't do much with it. It's not until you put it in the ground that, that the seed is able to bring about life. It's the mechanism that carries the very substance that actually produces life. See, a seed... It's sort of like an egg. Inside that, that hard shell exterior is the embryo. And there's also some, some other matter in there that sort of support the life of the seed. But, 
But that seed, that little tiny seed, has an embryo inside of it. And that embryo, when, is it, when it is exposed to the soil and to the water and to the sun, that is what produces life. But that embryo cannot act on its own. It has to be carried by the seed, protected by the seed, then planted into the ground. So see, a a seed has really no meaning unless it's put into the ground so where it can shed itself. It can sacrifice itself. It can literally split itself open and deteriorate so that the embryo would have a chance at life. Once it's placed into the ground, it, it must sort of sacrifice itself so that germination process could happen. It, it breaks apart. It exposes the embryo and the stored food and the other stuff inside of it so that the water and the soil and the sun can all do what they need to do so that life can be produced. Jesus compares himself to the seed. He says that unless he sacrifices himself, unless he gives himself up and allows the, the circumstances and the, the situations that are about to come on his life, if he doesn't let that happen, then life is not going to come. He knows that his time on earth is just about over. And ultimately, Jesus is going to have to sacrificially give up his life so that in his dying the sins of the world would be forgiven. In fact, just a few verses down, he actually says this is why he's come. Verse 27 says, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. This is why Jesus is here on earth at this time. Because he recognizes that he is the seed that must sacrifice himself so that life may come forward. And he's spoken of this idea before, that he, God's son, would die. And it would be by his death and his shed blood that the full, forever, final forgiveness of sin would happen. In fact, it's just two chapters later in John 14 Literally just a few days from the cross, Jesus would make one of the most important statements for us as mankind to remember. And yet, sadly, we so quickly and easily forget. He says in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. That nobody comes to the Father but by me. If there is any uncertainty in your minds this morning about who Jesus is, let me try to make it ever so clear. Jesus is the Son of God, sent to earth to live a holy, righteous life according to God's standard that no other human being could live, and that includes me and you. And that is called sin. And because of that sin, the Bible tells us that we deserve God's wrath and his judgment. And just like when you break the law and you have to face the consequences of that violation, 
so we too have violated God's law. And our punishment, the Bible says, is eternal death and separation from him. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, through the kindness of his heart, did not desire to leave us in that state, but knew that the punishment still had to be paid. He desires a relationship with us, but there's this this punishment that must be satisfied first. And so how does he do that? In steps Jesus, the only righteous of mankind, because Jesus was God himself, the creator comes to the creation. It took, he took the, the punishment for the creation, even though he did not deserve it, so that if man would confess their sins and live a life that would seek to honor and glorify God and trust Jesus as the Savior that he is, not just your present life circumstance. Don't just trust Jesus to fix what's, what's sort of broken immediately in your life right now, but to fix your spiritual brokenness, to fix the sin issue in your life. That that person would be saved and they could have fellowship with God. Again, that is exactly who Jesus is and that is exactly why he came And he makes the statement to all who would seek him to come follow me. That leads us to our last point. Number three, we see the restriction. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am... There my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The idea of uh, the seed analogy he gives is sort of a paradox idea. That life cannot come without death. Like, Like death has to happen first before life could come. It's a bit of a paradox. But then he qualifies that here. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever loves his life loses it. Can I just be frank with you for a second? If you believe that this world is all that there is. That the, the pleasures and the experiences, all that this world encompasses, if, if this is all that there is for you, the Bible says it's a shallow, meaningless life, and it will lead to nowhere. Like if your life simply exist, your whole existence is to to get yours, to be successful, to be wealthy, to be famous, to have stuff. In our day and age of 2022, to be an influencer on social media, whatever that means. But if your measure of love for life is measured by the world's metric, the Bible says you're going to lose it. 
Like, like there is some truth. Like, YOLO, you only live once? That, that's absolutely true. But if your love is for the world, YOLO, you only live once, but you're going to die twice. Physical death and a spiritual death, eternally separated from God, your maker. Jesus has said something like this before in Matthew 16. He tells his disciples in verse 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? You have everything that this world could ever offer you. But you don't have Jesus. What good is that? He says, you'll lose your soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? How much is your soul, your eternal state, how much is that worth? How much do you think it would cost for you to buy your salvation? We've got news for you, friends. You're never going to have enough. Jeff Bezos and his billions and billions and billions of Amazon dollars, let's be honest, he's making it off you and I. He can't buy heaven. He can't buy his salvation and when he dies, if he doesn't know Jesus, those billions and billions of dollars are going nowhere. He can't take it with him. You're working and slaving and, and, and trying to get ahead in life means nothing. means nothing without Jesus. But for those that desire to see Jesus. For those that desire an audience with him, to, to give their lives over to him and make him Lord and Savior, to confess their sins and realize that they have a great need for him, Jesus says there is life to be found. But they must also follow the example that Jesus gives. Jesus gives up his life and we must also give up our lives in a sense. This worldly, broken, sin-affected life that we are drawn to, the Bible says that we must put it to death should we desire to follow him. In Romans 8, Paul writes to the church at Rome in verse 13. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You've heard me quote this over and over and over again. It's one of my favorite Puritan quotes from the, the Puritan John Owen. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If we're to follow after Jesus, if we're to request an audience with him, we need to put our sin to death. Again, Paul in 
Ephesians writes this in Ephesians 4, verse 22. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The Bible makes it so clear that if we are to follow after Jesus, if we're going to be in the crowd of the Greeks, we're going to follow after him, we must surrender our lives to him, hating and rejecting our sin and all that it corrupts so that we could follow after him. Only then will we truly find life. And not just life, but a life worth living. So on this Palm Sunday morning, I ask you, as I did when we started, Who is Jesus to you? And what compels you to follow him? What compels you to seek him? Do you seek him? Let's just start there. Do you actually seek Jesus? And if you don't, why not? What's better than him? Show me. You're going to have a hard time convincing me otherwise. What, what crowd do you find yourself in? Is it one of the four who simply want something from Jesus and then they're going to reject him? Or is it the fifth crowd, the Greeks who want an audience with him, they are seeking the source, not the sign or the stuff. They want Jesus. Will you pray with me?